I've been thinking quite a bit about Christmas over the last few weeks as I've been preparing for this. And um, this might be a bit of a new one, but it, it strikes me that the story of Christmas, what I want to present to you is the idea that the story of Christmas, perhaps the story of the Bible, um, is a little bit like the story of a firework. Bear with me on this one. I know it's a bit abstract to begin with. Um, but we all know, don't we, that our God is a God of light. And, and this book, the Bible, um, explains how he has always been at work through the ages to bring light into the world. If you go through the Old Testament, it's like his light shone through the generations, like the path of a rocket burning against the darkness of the sky. And I don't know why, but this picture just really, uh, it just kept on going around in my, in my mind, and I wanted to kind of like present it to you guys tonight. It's going to be a little bit different, but to get us in the mood, I, I want to show you a bit of a clip um, of this firework that I found on, on, on YouTube. It was part of a, a Japanese fireworks um, display, and the, the diameter of this firework is, is about like this. Um, so the guys are going to show the video. It's amazing. There she is. Pretty big. So, do you want to see the end of it? Or what do you think? What's going to happen? Well, if you want to see the end of it, you're going to have to listen till the end. Okay? <laughs> so, that's how we go. So, um, what we're going to do, though, is we're going to try and make this illustration by sort of like fizzing our way through the Old Testament, and we're going to pause at a few stories along the way. We're going to stop off at some of the big names, um, as well as one or two of the, the less well-known ones as well, and hopefully we'll reach a spectacular finale before the end. So we're going to start at the very beginning. If you've got a Bible, open it up in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And with that, the touch paper was lit, and the story began, and the years began to roll by. And we're going to pick up the story sort of many years later, um, a bit like tonight, in the dead of night, there was this old man lying in his bed this guy named Abram. And he was, at the time, he was wealthy, but he was, he was deeply troubled because he had no son to inherit the fortune that he'd amassed. And his estate was kind of going to go to one of his servants. There was nobody to continue his family line. And he, he fears that his life's going to have no legacy. So he's anxious about it. And God comes to him in a vision in the middle of the night to reassure him. And he says, Abram, go outside. And so sort of weary and baffled, this old man staggers out into the darkness and God says to him, look up, can you see the stars? And Abraham squints at the, at the stars twinkling down over, over Palestine and God says to him, that's how big your family's gonna be. And although it seemed impossible, famously in, in, in chapter 15 of, of Genesis, Abraham said, it, it said that Abraham believed the Lord and that was credited to him by the Lord as righteousness. And so, to me, that's the moment where the fuse kind of burnt out and, and the rocket started to fizz into the air. Because against the odds, this old man did have a son and God's plan began to unfold. And, and this seed of faith, that burning light, began to sort of trace its path 
through the Bible from generation to generation, from Isaac to Jacob, onto Moses, onwards and onwards, the rocket forged its way into the sky. And sometimes, as you read, if you read this book, there were, there were, whoa, always treated with more respect than that. Um, sometimes, <laughs> if you read the stories, there were times when, when God's people sort of like wandered into the darkness, perhaps where the firework became hidden or obscured by clouds or darkness, but, but God made sure that it was always there, it was always pushing on. Because where God makes a plan, when he makes a promise, it's a certainty. So many, many years passed before we, we're going to pick up the story again. This time, we're in a small Palestinian town that you might have heard of, but at the time was pretty much unknown, called Bethlehem. God's plan had been unfolding, but it had come to a point where he, where he was going to intervene. A young woman um, cries out in, in the pains of labor, and her first child, a boy, is born. And she holds her, her son in her arms and, and reflects on what an, just a crazy year it had been. And then the boy is passed to her husband. And the year hadn't exactly been straightforward for him either. He struggled with fears that folks felt he was perhaps a bit gullible for standing by the woman at his side. But as he held the baby in his arms, everything seemed to make sense. The parents, of course, were called Ruth and Boaz. And the son was called Obed. Now, this is the point where you might think, this is a bit awkward. The guy at the front's got it wrong. I'm sure he means Mary and Joseph. But we've actually stopped off at Bethlehem about 1,300 years before Jesus was born. But after Moses, if you heard of Moses, but before um, the time of the kings, in the age of the judges. And this was one of those dark times that I talked about for the nation of Israel. Because at this time, the people had pretty much walked away from God. Um, in fact, the Bible sums up the few hundred years where the nation of Israel was ruled by these judges as, as, a, as a dark time by saying, in those days, the nation had no king and people did whatever they thought best. It was like the rocket had become obscured by the darkness for a time. And it wasn't quite as easy to see God's plan. But... But this is the moment where the, the, the big narrative of the Bible zooms in on this little story about this couple to highlight how God is always faithful to his plans and how he uses people of faith to achieve important things. So we're going to zoom into this story just for a moment too. If you've got a Bible, again, it's in, it's in a book called Ruth. Joshua judges Ruth. It's in there. Um, now, you know when you hang out with a couple for any length of time, eventually if they're a married couple or they've been together for a long time, you, you ask them the question, so how did you two get together? And I'm sure that is a question that Ruth and Boaz would have loved to have been asked because it was such a remarkable series of events that brought them together. See, Ruth was the new girl in town. She'd just arrived in Bethlehem and it was actually in, in, in tragic circumstances. She was this young, childless widow um, from, from a faraway land. Um, a few months before, she'd been living in a place called Moab, which was east of the Dead Sea, over in what's modern-day Jordan nowadays. She wasn't, so Ruth wasn't even an Israelite. And tragically, um, her husband died, um, her, her, her mother-in-law's husband died as well, and even her, her sister-in-law, her, her husband died. So these, there, was, there they were, these three childless widows in this place called Moab. And, and her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was from Bethlehem, decides that the best thing she can do is, is go back to Bethlehem to try and get supported there because to be a childless widow 
in that culture and in that time was bad, bad news. These women had, had very few legal rights. They didn't even have the right to inherit land that belonged to their husbands. And so Naomi decides that she's going to head back. And, and to, the, to these two daughters-in-law, she says, you, 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 you ladies, your best shot is to stay in Moab, try and find a new husband, rebuild a family here. But, but Ruth just is, refuses to leave her side. Um, in, in chapter one of Ruth, she says, don't urge me to leave you or turn back from you. Wherever you go, I'll go. And where you stay, I'll stay. And your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. So here in this verse is perhaps one of the most universally applicable, relevant messages at Christmas, and that's always be loyal to your mother-in-law. Just always do that. But um, So Ruth stuck by her, and they, they made the journey back to Bethlehem, and here she was, um, in this foreign town of Bethlehem, um, with virtually nothing, nothing except for a relationship to her mother-in-law and a relationship to God. And she was actually forced to go out into the fields um, behind sort of the harvest workers and try and just pick up the scraps that they'd left behind. And folks in Bethlehem, it wasn't a big place, um, they started to, to talk about this story of this, this poor young girl who was working away in the fields, who'd been so loyal and faithful to her mother-in-law and without realizing it, Ruth catches the eye of this, this businessman and local landowner, Boaz. And so um, they, have, they meet for the first time um, while she's out there working in the fields. And in this encounter, he, kind of, he's, he extends generosity to her. Even though she's an outsider, even though um, you know, she's, she's just picking up like, the scraps that actually belong to him in his field, um, he's generous. And he says, why don't you pick crops from the, from the actual main harvest bit and... And, um, you know, all my workers out here, I'll tell them to treat you really well. And we've actually got a drink station over there, so feel free to get yourself some, some drinks. And, and even in that moment, because of what he'd done, because of Ruth's faithfulness to her mother-in-law, he stops and he prays a blessing for her, which is beautiful. He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you've come to take refuge. And again, just as a bit of an aside here, this generosity in this moment from Boaz is one of many biblical examples that stress how God loves it when his people take in the aliens and the refugees, those in need, and extend generosity and hospitality towards them with compassion. It's both the duty and the privilege of God's people, and that's one of the reasons why everything that Helen shared is just so exciting that, that's, that we're, we're physically doing that and tangibly doing that right now. But anyway... In this story, it's not long before the mother-in-law, Naomi, spots a bit of potential between Ruth and Boaz, and she decides to play matchmaker. So she says, Ruth, we're going to get you a husband, and this is how we're going to do it. In chapter 3, it says, tonight he'll be willowing, winnowing barley on the threshing floor. I don't know what that means. And she says, what you need to do, wash and perfume yourself, put on your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. Don't let, him, don't, let you know, don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he was lying, and then go and uncover his feet, lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. So ladies, some sort of top tips of how to woo a man <laughs> ancient Palestinian style here. As you can see, the, the perfume and the clothing thing is still relevant. Although, I would probably ignore the bit about going in and cuddling up against his feet in the middle of the night. I'd have to say, Trent Vignard does not condone that as a, <laughs> as a strategy. Um, <laughs> this was a different time. But anyway, Naomi, she's like, 
trust me, this do the feet thing, he'll be like putty in your hands. And so Ruth makes this bold move, and I guess it could have gone two ways. Um, it does remind me of when, when Abby, my wife Abby, when, when we first met, um, we met and then we went on a date, and I think we'd met two or three times, okay, so we barely knew each other. And um, this package arrived in the post. And I was like, oh, this is from Abby. Um, so I opened this package up, and in it, there's, um, there was a letter that she'd written to me. There was a mixtape, and we all know what a mixtape meant. It was kind of quite a strong move. And a book about Christian dating, okay? So I was like, wow, this is full on. Um, I was very much at the sort of, am I into you, are you into me stage. She had clearly decided that she wanted to marry me, <laughs> which, which I guess was understandable. Um, <laughs> no. um, I, did, I got permission to share this story, by the way. But, um, of course, when somebody kind of really makes a bold move like that, it can sometimes backfire, can't it? And Boaz could have. It could have backfired there. He could have been like, Ruth, whoa, you know, you're younger than me. You're not even an Israelite. I barely know you, you're, you're coming to the threshing floor at this time of the night. I mean, it just doesn't sound good, does it? But surprisingly, he's, he's actually really smitten, and he reacts like a total gentleman. He kind of lets her stay there, lie there for the night, and then, and then he hurries off the next day to try and sort out a few uh, legalities and get permission from the village elders to, to, to redeem the family land, to, to take these two women and support them, and to take Ruth as his wife. And sure enough, the very next chapter, this child was born to this most unlikely of couples, Ruth and Boaz, in Bethlehem. And zooming out for for a second, we can see that this little story was actually crucial to the bigger narrative because because if you look at the start of Matthew's gospel and you see the, the descendants, all the people that came before Jesus, this boy Obed, he was a direct ancestor of Abraham, sorry, um, descendant of Abraham, but he was also a direct ancestor of Jesus. See, even in this dark time, even though God's people weren't really being faithful to him, God was being faithful to his promise that he'd made to Abraham, and he made sure that that rocket kept on pushing through the story. The theologian um, John Stott, he described the story of Ruth as a shining light in the dark ages of the judges, a reminder that the light hadn't burnt out, and also a hint that that maybe God's plan was bigger and better than anybody had even realized at the time. You see, remember, Ruth wasn't an Israelite. She was an outsider. Is that the faintest suggestion that, that this family of descendants, this, these stars in the sky that had been promised to Abraham, maybe God was talking about a promise that was even bigger than the nation of Israel. Maybe it was a promise for all people of all nations. See, sometimes, I don't know, when I started reading the Bible, I remember thinking that the, the Old Testament and the New Testament just seemed so different to me. And I was like, it's almost like there's two different gods. But the more you read it, and the more I've read it over the years, the more you see how actually they just stitch together so amazingly well. And there's certain sort of themes and, and, and trends and, and just like storylines that just seem to run through. And this storyline of, of, of God's faithfulness is one of those. It's a, the story of Ruth just gives us a, a little glimpse of how faithful God is to us and also how he uses people of faith to do remarkable things. To, in this generation, he clearly needed these, these two faithful hearts to carry that, that seed of faith, that spark of light through that generation. And when he found them, 
he brought them together in the, in the midst of a remarkable situation. And I believe in the same way, he's looking for, for faithful hearts today in his church. One thing that we can take from this story, for example, is the, is the principle of being faithful to your family. From, from Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law to, to Boaz's chivalry and willingness to support these women, in both cases there's this sense that, sense that, that their commitment to family was uh, a way of them working out their commitment and their faithfulness to God. And I think that's a good thing to be reminded of as we face Christmas. You know, we're all going to be spending time um, over Christmas. Well, not all of us, but many of us will be spending time with family. And family can be difficult, especially when they don't share our values or when they don't share our faith, when it's inconvenient. But you know, God loves it when we're faithful to our family. And I think especially to our parents and our grandparents. And I think especially if you have to do like a six-hour round trip to go and pick up granny um, over the next few days and listen to Chris Rea over and over again on the radio. Bless you for that. God loves it. Anyway, we've still got quite a few hundred years to go, so we're going to press on. So the rocket's burning into the sky, heading up towards its peak. And we're going to pick it up um, generations later. There it is. Um, where once again, um, a, a traveler, a wise man, approaches Bethlehem to, to see a boy king. Now, once again, I know this sounds familiar, but we're actually still a 1,000 years before Christmas. Um, we're going to take a quick stop off on the day when Bethlehem, one of the least important places in the nation, was visited by one of the nation's most important man, men, a guy called Samuel. Now, even in the back of beyond in Bethlehem, people knew who Samuel was. Samuel was a big deal. He was the priest, the prophet, the judge, the kingmaker of the nation. This was the guy who, um, a few years ago, when, when the Israelites had been outnumbered in a war by the, by the Philistines, he had prayed at the battlefield in Mitzpah, and God had answered his prayers by sending thunder and lightning to completely um, disarm the Philistines, and, and the battle had been a victory. He was the man who had chosen and anointed the king, and to this day, he was the only man in the nation who, when he spoke, even the king listened. So this was the biggest thing to happen in Bethlehem since forever. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 16. It says, when Samuel, when he arrived in Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. And they asked, do you come in peace? An indication of what a big deal it was. And Samuel says, well, I'm here to make a sacrifice. And so, of course, everyone's like, oh, Samuel says do sacrifice. So they're all rushing off to check the law and make sure they do the right rituals and prepare but um, as they're all doing that, the whole town assembles. Samuel is only interested in this one particular family. He's interested in the family of a guy called Jesse. See, on one hand, it was true that he was there to make a sacrifice. On the other hand, he was also there for a reason that he'd chosen not to share with them. And that was that God had sent him. God had sent him to find this man, Jesse, who actually was Ruth's grandson, and anoint from Jesse's household a king over the whole nation. And so Jesse's boys start to walk past and, and the eldest one, Eliab, walks past and Samuel's like, there he goes, that's a king, tall, good looking, had all the sort of credentials and I'm guessing Samuel was probably thinking, right, let's just anoint him and get out of this dump. But God's like, speaks to him just maybe in a whisper and says, don't consider his appearance or his height. I've rejected him. I don't look at the same things men look at. You look at outward appearance, but I see the heart. 
And then the next son walks past, and the same thing happens. And the next one, and the next one. In fact, seven sons walk past, and each time God says, no, he's not the one. So eventually, Samuel says to Jesse, well, have you got any more sons? Because they've run out. And Jesse says, well, there is the youngest, but he's off in the fields looking after the sheep. And Samuel says, well, could you go and get him? And of course, when Samuel says, can you go and get him? They're all like, yeah, we'll go and get the boy. So they all rush off, and they bring this boy before Samuel, and the Lord whispers into his ear, rise and anoint him. He's the one. And so Samuel gets out his horn and he he pours it over the boy's head and Israel's next king had been determined, King David, son of Jesse, great-grandson of Ruth. See, the time, the moment had come for, for God to give his people another glimpse of where this story was heading a preview of the spectacle that lay ahead. For a generation, he wanted his his light to to shine and burn brightly in the heart of this great warrior king. And the boy David went on to be an amazing king, beyond any other king the nation ever had. And here in this story, we see the reason for his success. It wasn't any of the superficial stuff that we tend to notice, like strength or appearance or skill, The thing that God was looking for most was a heart that would be faithful to his Lord. And David wasn't perfect. He made mistakes, silly mistakes, foolish mistakes, big serious mistakes too. But the one thing that he never did was consider worshipping any other God but his his Lord, Yahweh. That was the thing that, that that put him apart. And you know, there's a pattern, I think, that that we see repeated here throughout the Bible. When God finds a person with a faithful heart dedicated to him, like, like, like Abraham, like Moses, like Ruth, like Boaz, all the way as this rocket's burning through the Old Testament, you see it time and time again. God does amazing things through their life. And what's more, that's a pattern that we see in his kingdom in general today in the present. As we look into next year, into 2016, and, and wonder what lies ahead, I think a big question that we face, maybe the big question is not where should I live or what should I do or how will I cope or who will I meet? The big question is where is my heart? Because if we get our heart straight, that's when God can really use us. That's when we can really start to shine bright. And when our heart wanders away from him, that's when it fades. That's when it's harder for people to see the light. And in the story, in the story of this, this rocket, that's the problem. After David, the generations continued and their hearts began to get less faithful to God. There was a king called Solomon after David and then, and then after him, Rehoboam, Abijah, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram. If you, if you, if you got a Bible, if you flick to the start of Matthew's gospel, you can see all these names scheduled out. And you start to get into these, these generations of kings who weren't faithful. They worshipped other gods. They forgot God's law. And it began to look as though maybe this firework was going to burn out before it reached the top. King Isaiah, Jotam, Ahaz, more generations that didn't honor God. By now the nation had fallen into disrepair and weakened by civil war. Um, but even during this time, God was reaffirming the promises that he'd made. He sent prophets like Isaiah to remind the people that his plan was still alive. And, and, and Isaiah cried out, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. 
Isaiah cried out, the people walking in darkness will see the great light. But despite those promises, things didn't get better with time. The bad kings outweighed the good, and things just got worse. Next came Hezekiah. He was a good king, but, but Manasseh undid all the good things he did. Amon was bad. And then Josiah, again, things got better for a time, but it was all undone by Jeconia. And over about 600 years, the nation totally collapsed, conquered by surrounding armies. Jerusalem was burnt to the ground, and God's people were just scattered and sent into exile. Somehow, the generations continued, but the trace of God's plan seemed to have disappeared totally. We read on it continued down to Shealtiel, Zerubbabel, I'm I don't know how to pronounce these names, I'm just going for it. Abrid, Eliakim, Azor, Zadok followed, Akim, Eliad, Eleazar, Matan, and then Jacob. By now, the light had long since faded. For 400 years, even God's prophets had gone silent, and the promise that had been made to Abraham seemed to be dead. The trace of the rocket was nowhere to be seen in the sky, and and you know, I'm sure if you've ever been to a fireworks display, you might have seen this kind of moment where, where a firework, sometimes right as they get towards the top, they seem to just sort of fade out a little bit and there's a pause and you kind of don't know whether it's going to burst into an amazing thing or whether the thing's just going to be a dud. Do you know that you have had that moment and you're like, oh, sometimes. That's where God's people were. For about three or four hundred years, God's people were waiting to see what was gonna happen, whether God's plan, his promises had fizzled out. And when hope was all but lost, back in that town of Bethlehem, Jacob's son Joseph arrives with a young woman called Mary who's pregnant, carrying a boy. And with a flash and a bang and a star in the sky, Jesus was born. As it says in John's gospel, the true light that gives light to every man who's coming into the world. Just as Isaiah had promised, the people walking in darkness saw the great light. And this is why we celebrate Christmas. This is why the story of you know, this couple and the donkeys and no room at the inn and all that, this is why it's so famous because this time in Bethlehem, God didn't just bring a man and a woman together and give them a son in a remarkable way. This time, he didn't just anoint a boy king. This was more than intervention. This was incarnation. God physically came to Bethlehem. And in the 33 years that followed, in his life and his death and his resurrection, the story was forever changed. This was the moment when the firework went bang and everything changed. Because, of course, it wasn't the end of the story. I did promise that I would um, show you the video. So um, I think now's a good time. Let's, let's see how the, how the story ends. big firework, isn't it? Pretty big. If the Old Testament was the trail in the sky and Jesus was the flash, the bang that changed everything, that explosion of color, I think, is a picture of the church. 
The Bible tells us that after Jesus, the Holy Spirit came and he filled all of God's people from that moment on. So they were all carriers of the light. Not just the special ones, the chosen bloodline going through from generation to generation, but the whole of the people of God, the church. Just as as the bride Ruth, just as her story was redeemed from being characterized by death to life, in the same way the church, the bride of Christ, was, was redeemed from death to life by Jesus and then flung out to fill the sky like stars. Sometimes I look at the Bible when I'm reading the Old Testament and you you read some of the stories and you think, it would have been amazing to live in those times because it was such, so many cool things happened. But but if you've ever seen a firework, you'll know that we're the ones that live in the exciting age. And in the New Testament, in Philippians chapter two, it tells us just, just that. It tells us that we live in a dark generation, but as children of God, we're to shine like stars in the universe. We're the, promena- we're the culmination of that promise that had been made all along. Like he'd whispered into Abraham's ear, the reason that we're made, the reason that we're living and breathing is to be his light and to light up the sky and to reach out and out and out and out. We live in the age of the big finale. That's what Christmas tells us. But just like a fireworks explosion doesn't last forever, another thing the Bible tells us and is really clear about is that there's a day coming when Jesus, the light of the world, will return. It says in Revelation 22, um, verse 5, in that day there'll be no more night and they won't need the light of a lamp or the light of a sun because the Lord God will give them light and they'll reign forever and ever. In that day when Jesus comes again, the biggest firework we could imagine will look like a sparkler in comparison because then we'll really see light. And nobody knows when that day is gonna come. And I know this sounds weird, but the truth is, because we don't know when that day is gonna come, it could be this year. If we put off our, our sort of moment to shine, if we, if we wait and think, oh, I'll get round to kind of burning bright for Jesus, then we might miss our chance. So when it gets to the celebrations over this Christmas time, perhaps in New Year, when you're watching the fireworks rise up into the sky, observe how they, they burst so briefly. And when you're in that moment, I want you to, if you can, remember tonight and watch how short that starburst is and ask yourself the question, what do you want the story of your life to be about? What do you want to do with these, this, these few passing moments that make up our lives? Do you really want it to be about you know, self-preservation and comfort and fun and stability and the stuff that the world offers? Or do you want to do what you were made to do and burn and shine brightly for Jesus and reach out and out and out and fill up the sky? Do you want to take your place within his family and participate in this universal endeavor to work together and light up the whole world for him. Because I believe that's what we're made for.